Welcome aboard. You're listening to In Air with your host, Palmer. In Air is your podcast for all things aviation, from the flight deck to crew rest, home to hotels, and everything in between. Palmer and his guest will give you a peek above the clouds, answering all the curiosities and questions about the world above 35,000 feet. Thank you for tuning in to In Air. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the trip. Wheels up in three, two... Okay, hello everyone. This is Palmer again. I have an excellent group of guests today. I have Linda Freer and I have Tom Betty. Both of them are members of the board of the Pan Am Museum Foundation. I'm very lucky to have both of them. Linda, I have to start with you. Uh, thank you so much. I went last week out to the Pan Am Museum. It's out at the Cradle of Aviation in Garden City, New York. I did not know it existed until I talked to Tom, and it was a very short drive for me. You gave me a personal tour uh, through the museum, so thank you for that. Oh, I was so happy to have you. I'm glad to be able to give you a tour and inform you and put a spotlight on Pan Am, which of course is my favorite thing to do. Well, you did a great job of that. And I also got to see you in action near the end of it because there was a family there touring uh, with a toddler at the last minute. And so I was able to see you in action as kind of a museum host. You get it from the airplane. And as you, as you know, Palmer, you know, you're kind of Every time you're on a flight, you're a host to 100, 200, 300 people. So, and, and, of course, we really love when people come to visit us and have a connection, as that woman did. She had a connection to Pan Am. So we're, we're thrilled to be able to host people in our exhibits. I have a small connection to Pan Am in the fact that I work alongside of some former Pan Am employees. I was in leadership for a little bit and had the opportunity to lead a couple of Pan Am pursers. We have a few in common. One of your good friends, Andy, is one of our pursers, uh, Cecile Beck, Carmen Ange. In fact, I was talking to you about Carmen, about how impeccable she is, and you took the words out of my mouth. You said that she was the quintessential example of a Pan Am purser. Yeah, she exemplified what Pan Am always wanted to put forth as far as premium customer service on the airplane. Not only did she always deliver a level of premium customer service that was without question at the high, delivered at the highest level, but in her appearance and how and her expectation of how everyone also performed on the aircraft. When you went into a briefing for one of Carmen's flights, you knew you better raise your bar. If your bar wasn't already high, you better raise it because she expected nothing less. You're absolutely right. She would be at work sooner than everyone else. Um, if there was an IFE and flight entertainment, if there was a screen in her cabin that was not working, she was at the duty desk and she wanted us on the phone with the tower to get someone for maintenance out there to fix that before it was even time to sign in. She expected the best. Her hair impeccable, her makeup impeccable, her uniform impeccable. It was again, it was a complete package with Carmen from, from start to finish. Uh, like you said, the, the attire um, and her interaction with individual, with each of the crew members too. It was always professional. It was always, you know, she dealt with anything that came her way. She, she assumed a leadership role on board the aircraft and she took that seriously as well. She was a role model to me as a new flight attendant with Pan Am. I, I don't think I could have picked a better role model anyway to follow. 
I agree. The uh, Probably the second best would be Cecile Beck that you and I talked about. She is amazing. She retired uh, a couple of years ago. I was in the office when she retired. So I had a little bit of responsibility in her departure celebration. And she was just amazing. She celebrated 60 years of service between Pan Am and Delta. She met her husband, uh, Gustav, on the plane. And I flew with Gus and Cecile on occasion. Of course, they would fly together. You know, one be the person up front, one be the person in the back. But yeah, Gus and uh, Cecile were, were always, and again, similar uh, fashion to Carmen. Just exemplary role model, always putting uh, that premium Pan Am customer service and presentation from their appearance to everything the passenger experienced and touched on board the aircraft. It was going to be premium customer service all the way. I, it was unfortunate. I'd, uh, he passed away the year I started, so I was not able to meet Gus. But I have to ask you, was, was he the boss or she's the boss? Because I, I feel like Cecile was the boss. <laughs> um, I'm not answering that question. I, I choose. I put the fifth. All right. I'll take it. <laughs> You know, uh, she started in October 1959. She helped evacuate people, I think, from Tehran in 1979. She had royalty on her aircraft, celebrities. I believe one of the things she told me is that it might have been Jackie O that she had on board. But just imagine 60 years of service and what you saw, especially from a Pan Am and Delta combined career. Oh, absolutely. It's amazing. I remember seeing some pictures of when she did retire. And I was like, people like Cecile and Carmen... Flying was a part of them. It was, you know, who they were as people and, and it defined them. And I always thought it must have been so hard for them to, to retire because they were always so good at it. You know, obviously everybody's time comes, but um, I kept thinking, wow, it must be difficult because they did this for so long and they did this so well. And I can't imagine a world without, you know, an airline, whether it be Pan Am or Delta, without them in it. The thing that I think that we're better for is that although they're not here, their influence remains. And so I'm better having known to both of them. And I hope that is the legacy. Like I said, they were role models. And I hope that is the legacy that they leave is that their people who uh, flew with them will follow in their footsteps and always try to raise the bar. So the other person that we talked about is Andy, and I did have an opportunity to fly with him. And I also, as a leader, was able to witness his briefings. And let me tell you, the briefings that Cecile and Carmen gave were rivaled by the ones that Andy gave. He was on the up and up and you got that legendary service as well. Well, he's very exacting, you know, he's very exacting and, and uh, provides a great briefing and expectations from of what he wants from the crew and, and the experience he wants the passenger to have on board a Delta aircraft. Another extraordinary person that we have with us today is Tom. Tom, thank you for joining us. If you have listened to the Pan Am podcast, Tom is the voice of that podcast. He is also a member of the board of the Pan Am Museum. I have to tell you, um, you are younger than me. I'm not going to talk about Linda's age, but <laughs> I'm curious. <laughs> I'm curious how did how did you get involved with Pan Am? You don't even live in New York. That's correct. I don't live in New York. I live in Ohio, and. Um, I posted a story on Facebook and it kind of went viral and the Pan Am people just went crazy over it. And I had people sending me messages and, and really it, it came from my friends coming over to my condo. Um, and you know, I have a Pan Am poster and I also have a piece of a window, uh, from the last 707 Pan Am, 
jet in service. Um, I was able to uh, procure it from a collector in Arizona and I have it like hanging over my bed and everyone's like, what, what, why do you have that there? And then I tell them my Pan Am story and my friends uh, encourage me, you got to share this story. This is a great story. And it explains, you know, kind of, you know, your, your luxurious taste that sometimes does not match my paycheck. But I think that's common with most of us. A lot of us live outside of our paychecks. You know, so I posted this story and, you know, it went viral. And then I was introduced uh, to the Panium Museum Foundation and Linda. And then Linda started asking me, well, what, what kind of work do you do? And I say, well, you know, I'm in communications. Um, I'm also a historian, and I've I've served on on many boards in the past, um, and I do grants. And she's like, "Oh my gosh, you need to you need to help us, you know, please, please, please um, uh, become a part of our team." And then they asked me to serve on the board, and I I gladly accepted. My Pan Am story, and and I can say that I'm just a speck on the Pan Am history meter, but I was fortunate enough to be a passenger when I was an 11-year-old boy um, on a Pan Am plane. And in 1991, my uncle uh, was working for Eastern Airlines at the time, and Eastern Airlines went out of business. And he was very friendly with one of the Pan Am employees in the Cleveland Hopkins Airport, which was probably a very, very small um, station for Pan Am at the time in 1991. This was in 1991. She needed some help around the station in, in Cleveland and also to take things to Chicago and other things. They must have known that the, the airline was, was in trouble at that point. Uh, you know, Eastern Airlines, you know, closed, shut down, and Pan Am filed for bankruptcy in early 1991 around the same time. And she said, hey, look, I can't hire you but I can pay you with travel vouchers. Um, can you help us out? And it was probably against regulations at that time, company regulations, but, you know, and I have some petty cash that I can buy you lunch too. And my uncle said, well, I have nothing better to do. You know, why, why the hell not? And it turned out that uh, he got six travel vouchers anywhere in the world. And my uncle and my mom and my grandmother are all from Italy. So we decided as a family to spend the summer of 1991 in southern Italy for two months, two months, two and a half months. So, uh, you know, we planned this trip and we were using the Pan Am travel vouchers and we were getting ready to leave for the airport at 4 a.m. that that morning um, in Cleveland. And my parents um, made a critical error. You know, as 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 you, Palmer and Linda know, uh, when you fly standby on travel vouchers or employee buddy passes, anything like that, uh, you have to get dressed up. I'm I'm assuming that that's still the case with some airlines. Unfortunately, that is not the case, but you should. Oh, it's not the case. Regardless of whether it's the case, you should. But we had to dress up. I mean, suit, tie, dress shoes. And my parents failed to uh, take into account that the last time I wore my dress shoes with my little gray suit uh, was the summer before. So my dress shoes did not fit. So what, 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 what I had to do was I had to wear my ugly white Converse tennis shoes with my suit. And my parents were freaking out because they didn't think that uh, Pan Am would let me on the plane. Um, as it turned out, all of the 
uh, ticket agent said, oh, he's so cute with his with his, you know, proper gray suit and black tie and white tennis shoes. So they, they kind of made a joke about it. But uh, there was very much my parents were very concerned that we weren't going to get on the plane, but it didn't didn't end up having you know an issue. When I was growing up as a kid and I, I still am very much a fan, you know, I was obsessed with James Bond movies. And now I'm flying on James Bond's airline. Um, and I also liked Indiana Jones movies. So I'm flying on Indiana Jones airline. And that's where my love of Pan Am started when I was 11. And ironically enough, 30 years later, I'm sitting on the board of the Pan Am Museum, Museum Foundation and also hosting this podcast. Next month, we're recording now in November. We'll uh, publish this shortly. And then next month in December is actually the anniversary, the 30th anniversary of Pan Am shuttering. So I, as a non-rev, as an employee who non-revs, was thinking that you were going to get to Italy with your family and Pan Am was going to get stuck and you were not going to be able to get home. (laughs) That's where I thought the story was going. Well, you know, if it was a if it was a couple months later, or even a couple weeks later, we might be having a different uh, conversation. One of the things you mentioned, uh, Tom, was, or we were talking about is like perhaps a little bit later when the airline shuttered, but we talked about Cecile earlier. Cecile went out on a trip in a Pan Am uniform and she came back in a Delta uniform. So kind of starting backwards, next month will be the 30th anniversary of Pan Am shuttering. So I kind of want to start with that. Linda, you weren't at Pan Am at the time, but you had been a Pan Am employee for a while. And at that point, I believe you were either in the crown room or a base manager. No, no, I was at, at the at the transition from Pan Am to Delta. I was, um, an, a, I was an assistant manager for Pan Am at JFK, assistant flight manager. And then, yeah, went to Delta the next day. Even though you weren't at Pan Am at the time, folks were calling you and telling you that Pan Am was shutting down. Oh, yeah, I was at JFK. I was at that moment in time on December 4th of 1991. I was a Delta employee. But because I was at JFK and I got a call from a friend of mine who had stayed with Pan Am and gone on to work with Pan Am too, and you know, she basically said, you know, we're shutting operations. And, um, and yeah, it hit like a brick wall. It just was, it was the last thing you wanted to hear. It was heartbreaking. You just could feel your heart sink. You know, even though I wasn't with Pan Am on on that day, my heart was still with Pan Am. I, you know, I left Pan Am for different reasons, but I still love the airline that I started with. It was, it was devastating. Do you have any particular stories, um, I know that that cell phones and everything aren't as or weren't as prevalent as they are now, or even calling each other. But were there any times with you being at JFK? Was there employees that you saw in person, or any uh, situations that just stick out to you about that date? Well, we didn't have cell phones back then in '91. I, you know what? At that time, on that day, so much of the operation. At Terminal 3, which was the Pan Am Delta Terminal, was really all Delta people. Mind you, the Delta people that were working at Terminal 3 were all former Pan Am people, for the most part. I mean, there were other, there were Delta people there as well, but for the most part, it was all Pan Am people. You know, again, it was, it was really, everybody was in a state of shock. Because even though we had made, trans, and we transitioned and we were working for Delta, 
we, we nobody wanted to believe that Pan Am was shutting down this iconic airline with 64 years of history. You know, it was like you couldn't believe that it wasn't going to be anymore. Uh, you know, I, I do remember going over because Pan Am 2 was operating from Terminal 2, which was an original Delta terminal. And and I do remember running over there and talking to my friend. And, of course, they everybody was in tears. It was just – it was unbelievable. It was – it was, you know, that when you talk about too big to fail, it was just, you know, you couldn't, you, you couldn't wrap your arms around it. It was, they were, you were in a state of shock. Delta was still operating that night. So you had to work your flights. You had to get to work. And, you know, we had crews coming in cause I was, I was working, I was assistant manager at the base. You know, we had crews coming in and they were being met by shock waves because all the evening international departures were being staffed by Pan Am flight crews so who are now working for Delta and it was an emotional roller coaster dealing with everybody and and trying to pump them up and say you know we've got a job to do and let's just go out there and do it and they did again like true professionals that all of them were you know they they put it together and they knew you know you just keep it on it's like the show must go on and we will go on I know that Tom did a great job with uh, Captain Marshall if I'm not mistaken who it's one of the first or one of the last rather captains who brought a crew out of Brazil and they landed. And of course you have like legal rest that you're supposed to have and you have plans. You, you go to your hotel, you change clothes, you go to the beach, you go to the pool, you go to whatever. And he got a, a notice from the company that said, Oh, by the way, Pan Am shut down and we need you out of Brazil right now. Back to kind of Tom's point earlier, there was a non-rev mother an employee's mother that was there and and on your podcast tom you talk about or he talks about rather how we got that uh how y'all got that uh personnel but the uh, 30 year anniversary as i mentioned is coming up december 4th but you guys have an event on december 5th yeah we're we're very happy to celebrate the opening of a new exhibit it is a timeline exhibit that it was a year in development. A lot of hard work went into uh, development of the timeline. Like I said, a timeline of Pan Am's 64 years of history, and it is um, going to be depicted on a 22-foot wall mural uh, with the pivotal events indicated on the timeline, um, pivotal events in Pan Am history. Uh, we're really proud of it. it. It's great work. Our curator, John Budich, put it together uh, for the most part and um, did a great job. Pulling out, there's a lot of history to go through. So it was really a matter of what do you include, what do you not include, since there were so many historic events throughout Pan Am history um, that it was a matter of culling through the information and then uh, really putting putting a spotlight on those events that we thought were the most essential to include on this um, on this timeline. But obviously, as you've said, you know it's the day we're having the event on December 5th, the day after the Pan Am was shut down. Um, on December 4th of 1991, 30 years later. So we do want to commemorate. Uh, it's a bittersweet time. It's bittersweet in that none of us wishes the airline were gone, but we do want to celebrate what the airline was and the people of the airline while it was in existence and the many amazing accomplishments of the people and the airline. So too many to even put on the timeline, but we're going to have the event at the Museum at the Pan Am Museum located in the Cradle of Aviation in Garden City, New York. You can go to our website, www.panammuseum.org, for additional information and to purchase tickets. You, um, as we talked about, were an employee of 
Pan Am. You tell me, though, and we talked about this when you gave me the tour, you are not a stewardess. You are a flight attendant. But why were you a flight attendant and not a stewardess? Because I thought that Pan Am flight attendants were stewardess. Well, and again, it it's kind of goes back to kind of a historical demarcation line, if you will. And flight attendants were pretty much was pretty much the uh, name associated with people hired um, the seventies through um, through up up to current day. Really, um, I, I, if you want to go, there's kind of a demarcation line. Before people hired in the fifties and sixties were commonly referred to as stewardesses. But the terminology did change. And, you know, when you look at your job classification with, with the airline, yeah, I was considered a flight attendant. There was a lot of a different approach taken and a different regard for the flight attendant position uh, developed in the, in the 70s. And that, you know, we wanted to be seen as professionals who were there and, and not to diminish because they certainly were professionals and did the exact same tasks in the 50s and 60s. And they probably, they did it so well they really set the foundation for everything that ensued, but there was a different environment. It was, you know, about equality. It was about emphasizing the service aspect of our jobs, but also the safety aspect of our jobs. And that was really the point that I think many were trying to get across in using the term flight attendant, because it was more than just uh, delivering food and drinks on board aircraft. It was about saving people's lives in the event you had an emergency or there was a medical emergency, whatever the need was on board the aircraft. Flight attendants are trained to to provide that. And I think no matter what the instance or emergency that has been um, you know, demonstrated over the course of the last 30, 40 years, you'll see the flight attendants really come through and their training is evident in everything they do. They they rise to the occasion and they deliver emergency treatment service, whatever it is. Over and over again, you see examples of that, that these are true professionals that are trained so well to take care of their passengers, their charges on board the aircraft in an emergency situation. Yeah, I think that that's something that uh, the latest episode of In Air we talked about is uh, just the kind of current situation of air rage today or some of the customers who are, are mistreating Plot attempts to the point of breaking their noses or, you know, um, Tom mentioned before we started a recent flight, he had to go back to the gate for someone who was not wearing a mask and, and disobeying the flight attendants. I ask in that episode, when did we turn off the respect button? But I think that the interesting question to you is, you know, you had flight attendants in the beginning who were male, and then you had flight attendants who were female and nurses. And then you had the days where they were sex symbols. And then now we're back to we're safety professionals. It's very interesting on how kind of the roller coaster of flight attendant duties or flight attendants perceptions have existed throughout. But one of the things that I think is remarkable about Pan Am is Pan Am established what a flight attendant or stewardess is. I mean, part of what you're alluding to is really the evolution of the position. And the way it's kind of, there's different things between the way the position is marketed, you know, to the public in general, the traveling public, versus um, the way the flight attendant stewardess looks in in um, regards themselves. So the outside traveling public may have a different perception. I mean, people still call me, you know, oh, you were a stewardess. You know, I'm not offended by that. That's fine. You know, it, it's still you know, connotates the same thing. But technically, you know, I was a flight attendant. I was hired as a flight attendant. 
thing I will say about Pan Am, yeah, some airlines, especially in the 60s, kind of had that go-go boot and, you know, short skirts and short um, uh, uh, shorts kind of thing, um, skorts, whatever. Um, Pan Am never did that. Pan Am was always about putting forth a professional image, uh, a very um, elegant flight attendant image. Others have taken the uh, the uniform that was used, especially in the 60s, and kind of you know, we'll say tarted it up. You know, there's costumes I see out there, but that wasn't, that wasn't how the Pan Am flight attendant looked. It was always sophistication. Your hemline on your skirt had to be a certain length. You'd go in to report for your flight and they would tell you your, your skirt is too short or it has to be down, you know, to your knee, the middle of your knee. There were regulations. They were very strict adherence and everybody who, um, you know, came in would be reviewed. And you had to meet the grooming guidelines, whether it be for your attire and how you looked, and it had to be pressed and well well presented. Um, your hair, your nails, everything was regulated. There were certain colors that were permissible and certain colors that were not. You could not wear a bright red lipstick, you know, on on the airplane. That just was no okay. There was a sp- special color. I think it was like a coral color that was approved, and, and so that existed. It was much stricter in the fifties um, and sixties before I was flying. It was still existed in the 70s. It still existed in the 80s. But yes, did it loosen? Yes, of course. You know. Well, I can tell you both as a um, purser, flight attendant, and former leader that I wish that it still existed because those rules are in existence. But um, a lot of our colleagues are not always adhering to it. So I, I, I do appreciate it. The other thing, too, that we talked about were the pilot uniforms. And not only the pilot uniforms, you know, they had the white caps, they had the military-like uh, blazers and stuff, but they walked in unison to and from the aircraft. Uh, and that was more reflective of, uh, like, the early uh, 30s in the flying boats. And, yeah, um, a gentleman who was one of the – founders, not the founders, but was an original Pan Am employee back in the you know late 20s and 30s that was brought on by Juan Tripp and his Andre Priester. And he really set all the procedural standards, not only for the operation of the airline and, and for uh, flight ops, which would be pilot kind of, you know, anybody who was a captain or first officer or engineer, flight engineer, navigator back in those days when they had the need for those things, those positions. But Andre Priester and really Juan Tripp wanted the airline to resemble and to take after the kind of procedural compliance and regulation and look of Navy of the Navy. Tripp was in the naval, had been in the Navy, and so the uh, pilot uniforms were really designed specifically to resemble a naval captain and a shipman. And different from other airlines that had captains with black hats, Pan Am was unique in that it had the white caps. And that was pretty much unique to Pan Am. Uh, but it really did. And um, again, going back to the, um, to the uh, early flying boat days, they would walk in, uniform, in unison and in perfect uniform. It was kind of choreographed as when they would board the aircraft and deplane. They, similar to the boarding of a ship, there was a one bell for the crew to board. And then um, other, you know, maybe uh, stewards and things, maybe on on the second bell, and then three bells, I believe, was for passenger boarding, general passenger. Uh, so it was really very orchestrated, and uh, there was strict procedural compliance. And other airlines understood that Pan Am wrote the book on this. 
and that if you kind of wanted to uh, measure up to the standards that you had to follow suit. But they were, the the pilots um, of that age, especially in the 30s, were considered, you know, masters um, of their craft. I can tell you that as a, a the current employee of my airline, that it is very well known and 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 talked about openly that you can tell a Pan Am flight attendant. If you're on a trip with a Pan Am flight attendant, they are obvious. They are very obvious. So with that in mind, one of the things that we talked about, too, um, in the museum that I'm not sure if it'll transfer to the new exhibits that y'all are doing, but you had the presidential service and you had this incredible China. And, you know, it's emblazoned with not the presidential seal, but something similar. The presidential service was in, initiated on board the Stratocruiser, which was a um, propeller aircraft developed shortly after the war. It was derived basically from a, a military aircraft, and and when it was when it was launched, Pan Am again was the launch carrier for the Stratocruiser, the B three seven seven, and it was determined that there were certain that because of the level of passengers that were traveling on these flights, I mean, it was all first class at that point. There was no um, economy or tourist class. It was kind of known then uh, until much later, but they. Uh, determined on uh, New York to London, New York to Paris, and New York to Rio routes that there would be an elevated first-class service. The service all over Pan Am's network, which was pretty extensive even in in that time, um, was very elevated. It was a beautiful first-class card service. But the service for the New York to Paris, London, and Rio was actually even a notch above that. The menu was developed by a restaurant that was considered the best restaurant in the world, five-star, called Maxime's of London. I'm sorry, Maxime's of Paris. And they developed the menus and the recipes. And so the food was cooked to to the specifications as determined by the chefs from Maxime's. And so the china that was used on the Stratocruiser was kind of a a black scroll on with a beautiful white porcelain. It was beautiful china. And then I think what you're alluding to, Palmer, was the china that was used then uh, when Pan Am launched the the Jet Age in the 707 aircraft in 1958. This was a beautiful bone china that had a blue, light blue circular rim, coordinating glassware that had an eagle insignia with flags on it and stars, and and it was considered to be um, the China that it was the China that was used, the China, the silverware and the glassware, the stemware, if you will, that was used for the presidential service, which again was the New York to London, New York, Paris and New York to Rio. It was on those flights. Again, elevated service. And on the first uh, 707 flight, the inaugural flight, there were chefs from Maxime on board that um, were assisting in the galley with the food preparation and in delivering the food in the, to the to the passengers. Amazing, amazing experience that I, I know all of those people who took part remember with such great fondness. I want to bring in Tom after this question, but um, to you as a flight attendant, one of the things that's extraordinary to me as a flight attendant, I've worked for a few airlines, regional budget, and now a mainline flight attendant, However, you guys not only served seatside, you made um, meals cooked to order, including meat. And so 
there's in the exhibits at the Pan Am Museum, there are pictures uh, of these kitchens, basically, because they're they're much more than the bun warmer and the warmers we have on board today. But quickly explain to me how you were able to say to Mr. Smith and 2A and his wife at 2B that they could have, you know, a meal, one medium rare and one not medium rare. How did you do that? Well, they had great convection ovens. Believe it or not, there were convection ovens on board the aircraft um, way ahead of the time before convection ovens were even introduced into the, you know, the mainland, the main, um, you know, the public domain, if you will. So we had these amazing ovens and we cooked roast to order. So you would take the menu, you'd take the order from the passenger. And if 2A wanted his rare, and we would always kind of push, you know, more of a rare or medium rare, um, because uh, especially since you're being, you know, um, taught by the people from Maxime's, um, which in, you know, French, in France, it would be um, quite uncouth to serve a well-cooked slice of beef. So we cooked these beautiful roasts on board the airplane. And there were some great galley people that worked the galleys. Um, and that beef was always cooked to order. Sometimes there was a lamb roast, it, you know, could be lamb or could be uh, beef. And um, you would cook it on the rear side. And so if you had to pop some pieces back in, you know, if somebody wanted it cooked a little bit more or, you know, the, the uh, you know, person every once in a while who wanted it well done, you just would put it back in the oven and then you would cook. Because they weren't warming drawers. They were actual ovens. And they, they cooked, they great. Everything, whether it was the roast beef cart service that we used, which was amazing, or if it was a specialty item and the menus were developed to provide um, a selection of entrees that was indicative and reflective of your departure city. So if you were coming out of New York, you might, you would probably have also cheesecake for dessert or something, but you'd have um, some sort of entree, a roast beef that was maybe more American in nature, um, American influence, you know, maybe a chicken of, you know, there's always a chicken and a fish um, entree that was available. But with that kind of French t- touch, because again, don't forget, Maxime's was developing the menus. But if you're coming out of Paris, you know, or, you know, or London, there were some obvious um, entrees that were unique to those departure cities. But yeah, it was, there were great ovens and, you know, the cook, they would cook very, very well. You had to be, you really had to monitor. The galley people had to really monitor uh, the ovens and and especially the beef. And you told me that the you told me that the uh, flight attendants um, who chose galley chose galley. They wanted it. Oh yeah, during the briefing, those positions were were assigned. Um, but you know, it, it, the galley people always would come up, and especially based on seniority, I rarely got to work in a galley because there were people who were just saying, no, that's my position, you know, and they were usually senior. So, and they, but they knew it down. They knew it so well. It was down pat and they ran their galleys like a, a, a first class chef would run his kitchen in a, in a, in a premier restaurant. I wish it were that way today because uh, it's the opposite. Galley goes junior. The galley makes or breaks the flight. If you have someone who knows what they're doing in the galley, you're going to have a very smooth, very nice flight. If you put the most junior, and again, we're hiring now, a lot of airlines are hiring. We're increasing our international flights because obviously COVID's kind of wrecked uh, the airline industry for the past year or so. But if you put someone there in galley that doesn't know what they're doing, that service is going to last three hours and it's going to be sloppy. Yeah. Yeah. The person would take their direction and their timing 
cues from the galley person. You know, the galley person would kind of set the pace and tone and say, you can bring the cart out and set up the tray tables. You can bring, you know, the, the caviar service out. You can offer wines at this point, you know, or provide bread and rolls. You know, you, you they would tell you, okay, I'm ready. I'll be ready for entrees, you know, in 15 minutes. So they would they would really be setting the pace and setting the tone. When I'm purser, that's exactly what I do. I, I give a mini briefing and my galley is completely in control of service because if you piss them off or they get mixed up or they get whatever, then it's ugly. Tom, I want to bring you in. Uh, we were talking about the president service and actually the first kind of unofficial Air Force One flight was on Pan Am. Teddy Roosevelt, as a former president, did make a flight um in, I believe, 1910. But the first official presidential flight was in 1943. Pan Am was asked to fly President Roosevelt to the Casablanca Conference. Uh, and the flight they used, uh, the plane they used, was a Boeing 314 flying boat. And the name of that flying boat was called the Dixie Clipper. So that was the uh, first official U.S. president on official business, uh, sitting U.S. president flying in an aircraft was a Pan Am uh, Boeing 314 flying boat. And as I understand it, Pan Am was not prepared. They did not know that, or at least the crew did not know that that's who their special guest was. They knew that they were transporting someone, but they didn't know who that person was. They thought it was either, you know, some kind of celebrity or, or some kind of VIP uh, general or someone. They, they did not know it was the sitting president of the United States until shortly before takeoff. Very interesting. And then the flying boats. Linda and I talked when we were there, kind of my beginning. I was very junior. I was living in Washington Heights. And so I would bid the standby shifts at the Marine Air Terminal, which we were operating out of at that point. And so those were the Boston and D.C. shuttles, which I believe, Linda, came from Pan Am. Uh, the, the terminals? No, the shuttle flights. Weren't they Pan Am? Yeah, Delta inherited them from Pan Am, but Pan Am had purchased them from um uh, I believe it was Eastern. I think those were the old. No, it was New York Air. Then all New York Air. We Pan Am purchased them in uh, the eighties from on, from another airline. Got it. So the people who the reason that I did it is when you're a junior, you find all these different ways to like get out of working, basically, or working as little as possible to get the most money. And so I was able to get on the M60 after taking the one down to um, what's the university over there, uh, Columbia. I could I could get to the Marine Air Terminal, and not that I was supposed to, but I could sleep for the four hours of standby because the women who, and I call them women because most of them were women, who worked those shuttles came to work. They were locals. They drove to work. They were not calling out. So you as a standby, as a reserve, you are not going to get used. So you get to work at 5 a.m., you nap until 9 a.m., and then you go home, and you're off the rest of the day. But nonetheless, Tom, Linda and I were talking that is where the flying boats landed at the Marine Air Terminal. Like that was that was Pan Am's that was Pan Am's base. That's correct uh, in New York. So they would uh, land on on the water and then they would dock at the Marine Air Terminal. Uh, we just released uh, episode eight of the Pan Am podcast, and we had the good fortune. Um, I, I still can't believe we were able to uh, interview this gentleman, Captain Dave Bridges, uh, who joined Pan Am in 1943. He was one of the pilots of the flying boats and gave us, you know, at 100 years old, 
Uh, I don't think I've ever talked to a hundred year old person before. He was able to, his recall was incredible. And he told us every detail of the uh, flying boat operation. Um, he talked about the Martin uh, M130. Uh, that was the China Clipper. That was the uh, famous um, Pan Am uh, flying boat that crossed the Pacific. He was a boy in San Francisco. Actually, he was a teenager um, swimming in the bay, and he would watch these flying boats fly in and out. And um, his love of aviation uh, was was partly because of that. And he was just telling us all of these stories uh, that were just incredible. And what I like to say, you know, what, what the museum is doing and what Linda and I are, are doing is, you know, we're storytellers and we have this rich history of this incredible airline that really revolutionized travel and the aviation industry. If it wasn't for this airline and the, the, the visionary Juan uh, uh, Tripp, the founder, um, we would, our, our transportation today would be very different. So what we try to do is we try to tell stories. Obviously, we want to tell you know, we want to talk about the aircrafts and all of the amazing capabilities of the aircrafts and the range and, you know, how much fuel and how much people, how many people could, could be on these aircraft. But, but really it's the stories of the people, the people that design these, these planes, the people that built these planes, the, the Pan Am employees that worked on these planes, their family stories, the ground crews, the mechanics, uh, the ticket agents, the travel agents, it it's it's really the story of people. So what the Pan Am Museum does is we really want to tell the story of the people of this airline. Well, I think that you guys have an excellent foundation. In fact, aviation has an excellent foundation in Charles Lindbergh, who uh, took his first flight out of the field where y'all are currently located. You know, you talk about telling stories. Pan Am was huge in the war effort uh, that a lot of people I don't believe understand. I know for myself, both Tom from what you said and Linda from what you showed me in the uh, Pan Am Museum, there are a lot of efforts that Pan Am did through the, the 20s and into the 40s. Uh, for example, transporting supplies to Europe when the sea was not able to, you know, the shipping um, industry was kind of uh, taken aback. Two stories I want you guys to talk about, Tom, speaking of stories, is one that you shared with me earlier about when we talk about folks lost in the wars, there were Pan Am people who were lost. There were employees, civilian employees who were lost. And then after he shares that, Linda, if you will talk to us more about the ditching of Flight 6, because we were, t we were talking about Sully you know, landing the U.S. Airways on the Hudson. And you told me, you know what, this is not the first time that an airplane has ditched and survived. And not only was it not in the Hudson, but it was in the Pacific, I believe, out in the middle of nowhere, um, which there's a video that you shared with me uh, that is, as a flight attendant, I can tell you it is the most odd five minutes I've spent in my life because they circle because they have fuel. But that was just five minutes of the video. I think it was hours that they actually circled before they ditched. You know, Pan Am's contribution to World War II and protecting this nation um, started way before World War II started. You really have to look when you when you're looking at aviation history and looking to the the lead up to World War II, you have to really look at the interwar period 
And in Pan Am's case, you know, Pan Am was founded in 1927. So 1927 and 1941. So Pan Am was was the first in in many things in that period. Uh, Aviation radar, celestial navigation uh, in, in regards to uh, aircraft, all of the different aircrafts that were developed in that time period, uh, crossing the Pacific. Lindbergh was a Pan Am employee, and he was traveling, scouting out uh, uh, supply routes and landing strips. All of that was going on in the late 1920s and throughout the 1930s. So by the time uh, war was around the corner, Pan Am was a decade ahead of the United States government in terms of uh, aviation capabilities. So and when you think about it, in order for Pan Am to cross the Pacific, they had to establish bases. Uh, it's, it wasn't a direct flight. And, you know, from San Francisco to Honolulu, and then you had to refuel and, and hop a couple islands to get to the Philippines. In order to be successful in doing that, you had to build bases on these islands. They established bases on Guam, Wake, and Midway Islands. And while they were doing that, the United States government was asking Pan Am pilots to report on Japanese naval movements uh, that they see they saw from the air so that the United States Navy could get a read on, on what the Japanese were up to. And the Japanese looked at this very much in an aggressive way. They felt that America and the West was encroaching on their territory. So when Pearl Harbor happened uh, on December 7th, 1941, and uh, President Roosevelt gave that famous speech about this day living in infamy, and he was talking about how Pearl Harbor was bombed, Wake was bombed, Guam was bombed, and Midway was bombed. Those bases were not only military bases, but they were Pan Am bases. Uh, and Pan Am employees lost their lives uh, on that day. Many Pan Am employees lost their lives. And then as the, the war commenced, many Pan Am employees were captured by the Japanese and held as prisoners of war with other allied uh, prisoners of war. So that that is a story that... Um, we have an exhibit at our museum about Pan Am at war, and that is something that we feel uh, is a story that needs to be told because it's just as important as everything else uh, that happened in the war. It's it's an area that Pan Am re- really needs recognition in. And Linda, you told me about the ditching. You showed me the video of the ditching. The reality of it, you can fill in the blanks, but the reality of it is they are having an issue and they're out in the middle of the ocean, and there happens to be Coast Guard boats, and so the the Coast Guard is able to like help them out, but they're having to circle to spend fuel, and it goes overnight. And so all the customers who are on board that aircraft are getting, you know, details from the pilots as it's going on, and they see the Coast Guard boats out there, but it must have been hell on board to spend hours waiting to ditch in the middle of the ocean. You know, you, you have, you have customers, you were a flight attendant who are like, Oh, why do we, why do we talk about the uh, life vest? They're not going to be needed. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, um, you know, and everybody knows of course about Sully Sullenberger and the amazing uh, landing on the Hudson he did uh, and ditching of the aircraft. It was successful. Uh, but I always like to refer to uh 
the miracle on the Pacific that Pan Am and the crew members, it was Captain Og, was the captain of the Stratocruiser that ditched in the middle of the Pacific when it lost two engines and then three engines at what is considered a point of no return. Just for fact's sake, this is an aircraft who has four engines. Yes, correct. Um, so they they knew they were going to have to ditch, and um, they were fortunate enough that there was a Coast Guard cutter um, in the not-too-far distance uh, that they could radio and um, signal for help. But, of course, it, you know, the problems, the mechanical problems became imminently dangerous uh, in the middle of the night, and it was too dark. So they didn't want to ditch in the middle of the ocean when it was pitch black outside. So they circled for, for several hours, and we, the flight engineer on the flight was a gentleman by the name of Frank Garcia, a lovely man. Uh, one of the flight attendants, uh, stewardess at the time is what she was called, Len Spezia, um, were both able to attend a gala that we held in 2017, and we honored them. Uh, and they both tell a story of um, the cabin was actually quite calm. I think people maybe have were a bit stunned. They had been briefed, but, you know, um, they were very well briefed by the captain and, and kind of explaining to them what was going to happen. He moved everybody from the back of the plane forward because it was pretty well established from previous crashes of a Stratocruiser that it was likely the tail would fall off on once upon impact with the with the water. Pardon the interruption, but real quickly, it, it seems like a lot of times when you hear these stories, I remember my ex-boyfriend used to get so mad at me because I would watch like the air crashes on Discovery Channel or A&E or, or whatever. And he's like, why do you watch those? And I'm like, it's research. It's like, I need to know these things. But but one of the common things in emergencies like this is that people are calm and they are paying attention. Right. Well, they. I would think that there's a sense of at this point, they realize their lives are dependent on following the instructions of the people who are trained to handle these types of situations, who are the crew members. And, and that was the case on this particular flight. So they were, they were well briefed and um, told what to do. They were moved up front, and then um, Captain Og did an amazing dra- job landing, as you saw in the video, uh, Palmer, um, landing the aircraft. The Coast Guard counter had spread um, some foam. Um, it was at dusk, um, so it was just daylight uh, when you could see. And similar to the images that you've seen of the Miracle on the Hudson, you know, the passengers, as soon as the airplane had stopped and settled in the water, the, the stewardesses on board the aircraft opened the doors and they didn't have, in those days, the rafts weren't in the door. You had to take a raft out of a ceiling compartment. And Frank Garcia will tell the story of having, you know, to open the door to the cockpit once he kind of got his senses back about him and look out and just see the ocean and realize, okay, I got to get out there. I got to get back in the cabin and help them get the life raft from the ceiling compartment and out the door. And one of the one of the life rafts did get stuck in the one, of, I think it was the L1 door, um, but they finally got it out and they immediately got passengers into the life raft. So the first images you see on the video that we have, which is an actual video taken of the crash, of the ditching and the rescue mission that was taken by uh, an individual on board the Coast Guard cutter. You'll, you'll see as soon as you get focused on the aircraft, it's split in two and people are now standing on the wing and they are gradually being um, put into a life raft that was on board the airplane. And then they're approached by the life 
uh, rafts that were sent over from the Pontotran, which was the lifeguard, uh, the Coast Guard uh, cutter that was sent to rescue them. And once again, this is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And they were lucky the the seas were not horribly, uh, you know, raging at that day. It was it was for the middle of the ocean. It was somewhat calm seas. I'm not going to say there weren't waves and bouncing around. There were, but um, everybody miraculously uh, survived. Not one fatality. You know, everybody. I remember, Palmer, you mentioned that you know they didn't stop to get their luggage. Everybody left it and exited the aircraft immediately, and uh, they went on to the Pan Am life rafts that are aboard the aircraft, and then they were put into the Coast Guard cutter life rafts and then brought over to the ship and brought on board the ship. Yeah, I did mention that about the luggage because there's a few, uh, the Asiana crash in San Fran uh, recently, a few years ago, but you see people like pulling your luggage off. The only people who lost their lives in that were flight attendants, but they lost their lives on the ground. They actually were run over by uh, rescue equipment. Uh, I think there might have been two of them. But there's an image that I love, and I hate that they went through it, but it's an American evacuation. And the plane in the background is on fire, and there's this female flight attendant who is out, and you can tell that she's like getting people away. In the footage of all this, you see people with their luggage and you're like, dude, like, are you serious? Like you getting your luggage, which has your cheap clothes in it and, you know, maybe your power cords, stuff that you can replace. You really are endangering people's lives sort of thing. So examples that you can um, learn from your flight attendants and listen to them and leave your stuff behind. I want to make sure that we talk about the Lockerbie bombing and not only... um talk about it but these things are a lot of history that we're talking about but the Lockerbie bombing Linda you were a part of you were you were at work it was 1988 it was Pan Am 103 I think it was a connecting flight to New York and then on to Detroit if I'm not mistaken it was a Boeing 747 all 243 people on board lost uh, there were 16 crew I think and then some others on the ground that were lost but you were at work that day Yes, I was. Um, I was working um, in the in-flight service office at JFK, and um, I remember my uh, my my manager at the time because I, I I was a supervisor in 1988, and her name was Diana Adams, and um, she'd gone into her office because the phone was. We were standing outside her office talking. She goes into her office, and I saw her sit down, and I just literally saw her face drop, and I knew immediately. I said, I, I remember looking at her going, "What's the matter? What happened? What's wrong?" And you know, she just said. The 103 is off radar, which that's not, a, there's, that's not good news. No matter how, no matter what, that's just bad news. Um, and I ended up going over to the terminal right away because uh, our offices were located at that point over by the hangars. So I ended up going over to the terminal uh, where I spent most of the rest of that night. Um, and I was there um, when the news was being released. Unfortunately, uh, the you know, there were televisions, you know, in the boarding gates at that point. We had, you know, the CNN was live with things. And there was pretty much active reporting coming out of Lockerbie um, as to the um, the downing of the aircraft. And, you know, of course, no one knew what exactly what had happened. But there were images of the plane burning in this small little rural town in Scotland, uh, which were devastating. And I think the worst was all of us knowing that the parents of, there was a group of students on board um, who'd gone over for a semester abroad 
parents of these kids that from the from Syracuse University had come to meet the flight, and um, that was probably the most heart wrenching, heartbreaking time I can remember back from from those days and going to the airport and as these parents were becoming aware um, that um, it was likely their child wasn't coming home. Were y'all interacting with them at all, or were they out at baggage claim, or what was going on? Panem had what was called the Clipper Club, which were the private, which were the mem- which were the private lounges at at the airport, and um, Panem also had escorts that were specifically trained to handle this type of situation. Family member was met upon arrival at JFK and escorted up to the Clipper Club, and um, they that to keep them one away from the other travelers that were coming in and out of the terminal because flights were still obviously departing, arriving and departing. Um, and also to keep them away from media because unfortunately they wanted to get in their faces and, you know, we just kind of wanted to give these people privacy. This had to be the worst moments of their lives and try to give them some, some privacy, even though um, I was standing feet away from a woman who upon coming to the gate and seeing uh, the news um, collapsed and just started screaming on the floor. And her picture was all over the front page of the New York times the next day. And I remember looking at that and thinking, they should have given her her respect and her dignity for the for the grief and the horror of that moment to let her it's it just unbelievable suffering i wasn't a parent at the time you know i am now but i just i i just couldn't have imagined the horror of of learning that kind of information you and i are both flood attendants you're stronger than i am because you i i think that you're part of the care team and we ha- we have that at my airline and it is dispatched when things like this happen. And you are kind of assigned a family or whatever, at least with my airline. I would not be able to do it. How did you face these people? Because you were an, you were a base manager. So did you even know who was on that flight yet? You're, did you have any direct reports? The minute we heard the, the plane was, the flight was off radar, we had pulled up the crew list in the computer. So we knew it was a London-based crew. Um, but of course, you know, flight attendants change bases all the time. So there were many that had gone, you know, had recently been at JFK and had maybe just gone back to London. So, you know, sometimes people would pick a season and come to New York or go to London or go out to the West Coast. If they could, if they get, get into the base, if the base was open for transfer, you know, they would, you know, fly, work around different bases in the system. So yes, we knew many of the people on, um, on the flight. 88 was also a year of Pan Am was hiring flight attendants. And so we had sent a new class over to London, not too far before um, uh, that had happened. So there were junior flight attendants on board that aircraft who had just recently completed training, one of whom was a, a lovely young woman named Jocelyn Reyna. And, um, you know, it was, it was, again, your heart just sank because these were friends, they were colleagues, they were, you knew, uh, and the London base was such a very close-knit base. It was a small base, um, but they were all very familiar with one another. They knew with one another very well because they were so because it was so small. And this was just devastating. And I ended up actually being sent over. I, I remember leaving New York, I think it was the 26th of December, and I spent the next almost two months there um, working in, in the London um, office then um, being sent to, you know, I had to go to Lockerbie on a couple occasions because I was assigned to oversee um, the uh, 
the relations with the uh, family of the two French-speaking flight attendants because my language with Pan was French. So it was, I mean, it was devastating because how do you, I remember being up late at night. Uh, they would call because they were living in France and the, and the families would call and all you could really do because there's nothing you could say that would provide any consolation or make them feel anything other than the grief and sorrow that they had that, that I know some still feel, many still feel today. You don't, you, you don't get over this. You maybe get on with your life, but you don't get over this kind of thing. It's just, it's always there. It's always a part of you. It's always a piece of you. It's interesting because I was called for jury duty right when I first moved to New York way back in 2008. And it was a very serious trial. I was into the being chosen for jury, but thankfully they settled at our first day's lunch break. So I didn't have to serve. However, one of the questions that they asked me was um, how trusting I was and did I trust people? And I said, yeah, I'm a flight attendant. And they were like, well, what does that mean? And I'm like, well, I'm a flight attendant. And he asked me again, what does that mean? And I said, I'm a flight attendant. I show up to work. I don't know the two people in the cockpit. I don't necessarily know the five or six people or two or three people, depending on the aircraft that I'm flying with, but I trust the equipment that the maintenance people have, you know, checked it out. I trust that the people that are flying are capable and sober and, and mentally capable. And I trust that the people here. And so I think when you think back to situations like this, I can understand, well, I can't understand because I've never done it, but I've never experienced it, but I can understand the families of it. But I often think about these things like how you or people who are in it look at the people who were lost because we just go to work and we, we don't think about the plane blowing up an hour into flight. And so they were probably just doing their jobs at that time. Yeah, no, we know that they were just, you know, they were probably delivering the beverage service. It was not that far after takeoff, um, you know, when they were at altitude and able to start service. Um, they are probably doing the initial beverage service. Uh, but, yeah, you, you can only hope that they didn't know anything. There has to be some peace there about that. There has to be some peace and that um, it was just such a um, dramatic um, impact of uh, the explosion that um, no one knew anything. That's that's the only thing you can hope for. I think that probably was the biggest thing that happened before nine eleven. Yes, yes, and it was uh, not that far later, you know, which was you know, you know, for me because um, you know I'd been in New York because there was the first bombing of the World Trade Center, which was actually I was over at the shuttle operation that day, and that was traumatic. And then, um, of course, you know, with Lockerbie, that was just gut wrenching, and um, and you knew it was it was pretty much the death knell for Pan Am, which was another death. So it was just you know the death of all these individuals and these people who you knew and you 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 thought of you know as your colleagues and friends, you know, followed by um, the death of the airline, and then you know a few years later. Uh, 9-11. Were you in New York? I was not. I was actually in Atlanta. I was with Delta um, and I was going into meetings. Um, and it was it was a very difficult time because, um, you know, my family is in New York. My kids were in school and my husband was in New York City. And it was a, it was a very difficult time. Uh, and it did. It brings up those 
feelings, that gut punch that you feel when something like this happens. And, you know, there have been several incidents throughout my career with the airlines that were just like, I don't know how many more of these I can experience because it just, it does take a toll. It takes an emotional toll out of you and you need to be, um, you, you need to have the strength and the perseverance to, to deal with it, but you also have to understand your emotions. And at some point, I mean, a lot of people did quit after nine 11. They, a lot of people just said, I can't do this anymore. You know, it's, it's, too, it's too, it's, it's reached a level of, of, of fear on board an aircraft that I can't do this anymore. I never felt that. I mean, I remember when I, after I came back from London after the one Oh three, when I was there for a couple months, I can remember flying on the same flight path that the 103 would have taken and um and just wondering. I remember looking out the window and saying, I, I just hope they never knew. I just hope they never knew. And then on you know, on nine eleven, for those people that were on board those aircraft and, and you know, thankfully Delta wasn't one of the aircraft that was hijacked or flown into a building. But yeah, it was, you know, you you know they knew what was happening. You know, they they were very aware that this was this was not going to end well, especially the ones that crashed in uh, Pennsylvania, you know, who were trying to regain control of the aircraft from the terror from the hijackers. You know, they knew. So one of the things, Linda, that you talked to me about was Operation Baby Left. And this was something where our military men, when they were overseas, had relations with the women that were in the places where they were serving and had children that became orphans from fathers. And so there was some effort to bring them back to the U.S. or to the, not back to the U.S., but to the U.S. What was that all about? And how did Pan Am involve themselves there? How did they um, offer themselves to the government on that? Yeah, it, it, well, as you, as you mentioned, you know, these were Amerasian children. So they were mixed race children fathered by American military servicemen. Um, and when the military, when the men returned to the United States, these children were left pretty much shunned by the Vietnamese society because they were considered mixed race. Uh, and many of them ended up in orphanages. Uh, as the war was um, clearly, uh, the United States had made a decision to pull out of Vietnam. 1975, the situation was becoming more and more clear that South Vietnam militarily could not hold its own without the U.S. Um, against the encroachment of the North Vietnamese. became an emergency effort to evacuate not only American personnel working there, and there were hundreds of thousands of Americans working inside, in, in and around South Vietnam, you know, Pan Am personnel, Time person, people who work with Time magazine and Citibank. There were many American enterprises that were then contacting Pan Am to say, we need to get our, our personnel, our staff out of um, South Vietnam. So the flights were becoming full and full. We, we would have a flight with a thousand reservations and maybe 200 people would show up because they couldn't get the documentation process fast enough to get their exit visas. But it was also, obviously, it became paramount of paramount importance to evacuate these children that had been fathered by American military men uh, because uh, it, was, it was pretty well believed that those children would likely be killed once the um, communists had taken over control. There was kind of a makeshift Operation Baby Lift flight that was that happened in uh, the end of March, I believe, and it was 
uh, begun by World Airways and the gentleman who owned World Airways. I think his name is Bob Daly. And it was somewhat successful. It didn't take out as many children as they needed. But there were about 3,000 infants evacuated in 30 days. Um, many of them were on board Pan Am flights. The U.S. military uh, assisted uh, with their cargo airplanes. They, they were called the C-5A Galaxy. Um, and World Airways operated two flights as well. Um, they did a 727 out of Da Nang, and then there was a, um, a 747s. Uh, Pan Am operated uh, several 747s. A gentleman, last name is McCauley, actually worked with, uh, there were many relief agencies involved in the evacuation of the children. Um, and this gentleman, Mr. McCauley, was uh, president of AmeriCares, which is a relief organization that exists still today. And he put his home up. He mortgaged his home to get the money to charter the two Pan Am 747s to start evacuating the children. And so they, you know, we sent the crews over, um, and it was a volunteer mission. You couldn't force a crew member to fly into a war zone. There were no commercial airplanes flying in and out of uh, Saigon at this point. It was, um, we were fortunate that President Ford had allowed Pan Am to operate in and out as a military charter aircraft. This was kind of, as, as you and I discussed, kind of like the beginning of the craft charter, similar to what we did American Airlines did this year with the Afghanistan refugees to get them out. Right. Yeah. So, you know, so Pan Am, you know, flew in um, a 747. The first flight was on April 5th and um, it was packed, you know, a plane that would normally carry about 347 passengers had over 500 babies in bassinets and the images, you know, with all these babies double stacked in seats and, of course, the crew was on board, and then they had um, medical professionals. They had nurses and doctors who were also accompanying uh, them on board the aircraft to tend to the, the care. A lot of these babies were very, very ill. Uh, the journey was difficult. The kids were being given formula and milk, you know, Western-type food, and they didn't – their di their babies, their systems just couldn't digest it. They were sick the whole the whole way, you know, from – and it's a long flight from Vietnam, you know, to Honolulu and then to the West Coast of the United States. And many of these kids were brought back to New York as well. So it, w it, was, it was an arduous, arduous flight. The 47th anniversary is on April 24th, uh, 2022. And we are having an event at the museum to commemorate and recognize people who were instrumental including the station manager for Saigon, a gentleman by the name of Al Topping, who wrote a wonderful book called Wings of Freedom. Um, he will be in attendance with members of his staff from, Viet from Vietnam, from Saigon. And we have um, contacted uh, about five of the flight attendants who are all looking forward to participating in the event who were on board. And they've written the most poignant, compelling um, stories of their involvement with Operation Baby Lift that you just say, an amazing, amazing heroes. They're my heroes, to tell you the truth, because uh, to go to fly into a war zone not knowing uh, if you were going to be bombed, because the, the the surrounding area around the airport was bombed, was being bombed in the middle of all of this going on. Uh, the pilots were just amazing uh, in what they did and how they flew these planes. They they were they they were shot at. They you know it, it was just an amazing time. And these women who volunteered for these missions are heroic. I, you know, there's no other word to say it. They were just, they were, plus they had the, the care of, you know, maybe 10 to 15 babies. It wasn't just one or two children. They were caring for 10 to 15, maybe more each. 
Oh, that's insane. Uh, will you have any um, of the babies, obviously adults, that were babies at this event? We're working with another organization that is headed by a woman by the name of Lana May Noon. And Landa, Lana is the mother of, she initially adopted two babies from Vietnam that were brought over on Pan Am um, on the flight that left April 5th of 1975. Unfortunately, one of her daughters um, did not live very long after arriving in the United States and she passed away. But her other daughter is 46 years old, and yes, she will be uh, present. And we're, uh, Lana is in the process of contacting uh, many other of the children who've been involved with her organization for years and looking to have them um, in attendance. Uh, we've heard from uh, Steve Ford, who is President Ford's son, who is also trying to attend the event to represent his father. Um, because it was his father who paved the way for these for this flight and for for all the flights that were involved in Operation Babylift. And there's a very historic image of President Ford meeting the aircraft in um, San Francisco on April 5th when it came in from from the from the from Vietnam holding the babies. And a lot of people don't know that this was an especially poignant story for President Ford because he too was adopted. So. Um, it really resonated the fact that he was an adopted in person that these children were going to be brought out of harm's way and adopted by waiting and anxious parents in the United States. So it's a beautiful story. It's a compelling story of, of heroism. And, you know, we're also thrilled to be able to tell the story of where are these children, adults now uh, in the United States, and they're doing very, very well. I think that this, among so many other stories, Linda, has opened my eyes to Pan Am uh, through the Pan Am Museum. You showed me that picture you're talking about. It is part of the exhibit. Wanted to uh, remind everyone that you can go to thepanammuseum.org uh, to find out more about Pan Am and the uh, Pan Am Museum. If you are like me and a New York resident, you can go out to the Cradle of Aviation. It's very convenient in Garden City, New York. You can drive. I drove. Public transit. You're right off the uh, Long Island. You can get the Long Island Railroad. You can get there uh, with a short uh, car service. I would love for either of you, if you have any closing statements or, or closing remarks, to share those. But otherwise, thank you so much. It's been my honor to talk about Pan Am and to have both of you join me. Well, thank you, Palmer. It's been a pleasure to be with you and help you're helping us shine a light on Pan Am and obviously something I personally hold dear, near and dear to my heart. Um, as you said, just come out and visit us. Let us know if you're coming. We'll, we'll try to be there and give you a personal tour like we did with you, Palmer, because um, we want people to know the story. We want them to understand uh, the significance that was Pan Am. And, and thank you, Palmer, uh, and the best, best of luck for your podcast. You have a great format, um, and we really appreciate you hosting us. Uh, for this episode, and we hope to return in a future episode. Well, thank you so much. I know you all have bigger things to do uh, for the evening. Enjoy your dinner. Enjoy your family. Thank you so much.